Hey everyone, I'm Patrick Brown. Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Our guest for this episode is Albertos Palazagopoulos, one of the most prominent legal practitioners in Canada when it comes to cases and questions involving freedom of religion. He's the principal and founder of his own Ottawa-based law firm, The Acacia Group. And in defense of the Christian mission of his broad client base, including churches, charities, schools, universities, and hospitals all across the country, he's appeared numerous times in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. Our conversation with Albertos looks at the landscape for religious liberty in Canada against the backdrop of the 40th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We talk about the implications of COVID restrictions, the Government of Canada's use of emergency powers in response to the trucker convoy, why recent federal legislation banning conversion therapy may be the greatest threat to religious freedom at this moment, and what the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on abortion may or may not mean for Canada. We also discuss a unique type of trial for members of today's legal profession, namely the ability to practice one's faith while practicing the law. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on social media, and check out how you can support us by visiting our website at www.crownandcrozier.com. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome to another episode of Crown of Crozier. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest for today is Albertos Palazagopoulos. Albertos, a warm welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Yours is very much a familiar name to observers of high-profile court cases in Canada involving constitutional questions relating to freedom of religion, conscious, and association. So we're really looking forward to getting your insights and talking through some of the issues of the day. Uh, we're all about milestones on this show, and the year 2022 is an important milestone for one of the key pieces of the constitutional architecture here in Canada, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Turns 40 years old this year, uh, did so back in April, and it plays a pivotal role in the adjudication of various constitutional issues at, at all levels of the court system here in Canada. So I thought I'd start by getting your thoughts on the legacy of the Charter 40 years into its history. So when 2022 rolled around and there was conversation beginning around celebrations and recognition of the 40th anniversary of the Charter, what thoughts ran through your mind? Yeah, so it's it's a little difficult for me to answer that just because I also turned 40 this year. And, and so my following of the Constitution has not been as long as its lifespan. But I can tell you that in 2015, I was asked to write an article on the 800-year anniversary of the Magna Carta and how that related to the Charter at the time. So that was seven years ago. And I recall when I was about to sit down to write that article, my my thought was that religious, and it was about religious freedom particularly. My uh, hypothesis, I guess you could say, was that the Charter has done more damage to religious freedom than it's done good. And as I started looking at the religious freedom cases over the 33-year history of the Charter at the time, I realized that I was wrong. 
In fact, in the early days of the Charter, there was a lot of expansion of religious freedom and other fundamental freedoms, so freedom of religion and conscience, freedom of expression, thought, belief, and opinion, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and, and those fundamental freedoms. But something happened in or about 2008, specifically with respect to, to religious freedom, and it started to, to really curtail and limit itself. But we seem to be seeing a bit of a swing back. There have been a number of recent cases at the Supreme Court where religious freedom was strenuously upheld and uh, vigorously defended. So I, I can't explain what caused that shift in the early to mid 2000s or mid to late 2000s rather, uh, but something seems to have happened and that happened with a case called Hetarian Brethren uh, for those who may be familiar with it. So we can park that conversation just for one second, just for the benefit of our audience, but let's just take a bit of a step back and talk about the charter itself. I mean, in some ways, an analogy uh, one could draw is that the, the way the political and the pundit classes here in Canada talk about the charter, I mean, it's almost on the same pedestal or it's considered to be the apex of Canada's constitutional architecture, similar to the, to, similar to the way we hear our American brethren talk about their constitution. But the charter itself is not tantamount to Canada's constitution. I mean, maybe you could just speak a little bit about that. What is the charter what is its place in the larger constitutional architecture and, and what are the key things to know in, in that regard? Sure. So the constitutions, uh, constitutional governments, constitutions like ours, like uh, the United States, like South Africa's, like England's, like Australia's, really set up the structure of government. And the charter in Canada, the charter is just one piece of the constitution. And it's essentially our Bill of Rights. Now, the way mm -hmm. the charter applies is we've seen this a lot with COVID and vaccine mandates as well. Some people will say, well, my, my employer is requiring me to prove that I'm vaccinated. That's a violation of my charter rights. Well, no, it's not because the charter doesn't apply to your employer. The charter only applies to government. So it's, it's essentially a bill of rights and it binds the government. It doesn't bind individuals or employers or other non-governmental entities. It binds the government. And so those fundamental freedoms I referenced a moment ago, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of expression, thought, belief, and opinion, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, those are fundamental freedoms set out in section two of the charter. And the charter makes it, I guess, illegal would be a simple word, illegal for the government to restrain those fundamental freedoms or those rights. Now, there are circumstances where the violation of charter rights can be upheld. Uh, and the government has to then defend the violation and defend the reason for it. There's a whole legal test set out for that. But if your employer tells you, you can't say grace before you have lunch in the lunchroom, that's not a violation of your charter rights. That's a violation of your human rights under the provincial human rights legislation. So unlike the American constitution, I think our charter of rights doesn't form part of the constitution itself. I mean, it's part of it, but it doesn't direct how the government functions. So the the, the Canadian constitution is broader than that. It includes division of powers. It, it sets out what is within the federal jurisdiction, what is within the provincial jurisdiction, and so on. But the charter itself really binds the government with respect to those human rights or those uh, fundamental freedoms and so on. Looking at the text of the charter itself, arguably, there is a lot there to commend it. I mean, the preamble, the opening sentence of the charter talks about Canada being a country that's founded on the rule of law and the supremacy of God. Certainly that latter part is something that resonates with people of faith and the Christian population and, and demographic in this country. And you 
proceed down the list and the sections in the charter. And again, there's a lot there to like in the section on fundamental freedoms, what's given primacy. Arguably, there was some rhyme or reason to the first thing being mentioned, the freedom of conscience and religion. Do you think that there's there's more in the charter to like at first glance in terms of a superficial reading than there is to be uncomfortable with it? I, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, the reality is the charter itself is a beautiful document. There's really nothing in there that I would disagree with. And I suspect anybody would disagree with who's against freedom of conscience, who's against freedom of religion, who's against equal treatment under the law on the basis of religion, sex and uh, race and, and so on. I don't think many people are. The people who opposed the charter when it was coming into force and the people who have a problem with it now don't have a problem with the rights enumerated in the charter. They have a problem with the way the charter in some ways usurps the electorate. So parliament passes laws and the courts will determine whether or not those laws are charter compliant. And we've seen many instances of controversial issues decided not by legislatures, but by courts within the context of charter applications. Perhaps the most recent one from a high profile perspective is assisted suicide in euthanasia. So the criminal code prohibited assisted suicide and has for decades. And in 2016, I believe the Supreme Court unanimously struck down that, those provisions of the criminal code because they concluded that they violated the charter. If you're in favor of assisted suicide, you're, you're happy about that. But if you're in favor of electoral and parliamentary supremacy, you have real, real apprehensions about that. And assisted suicide is a good example because in the previous 10 years, the issue had gone to parliament more than a dozen times, I believe. And in each one of those instances, parliament unanimously rejected the legalization of it. And parliament is supposed to reflect the, the views and the wishes of the populace. And so you've now got nine judges on a court who are saying, well, this is what we believe. Too bad, so sad, 37 million Canadians. This is what we believe. And so here's now the law. Uh, so that's the problem, if there is a problem with the charter, is that it really takes away the power and the voice of the people and gives it to a select number of judges across Canada. And would you say that's been a problem that's been more magnified and acute in the recent history of the charter? I mean, did it always start off that way, kind of right out of the gate when it was put into place and in 1982, or, or is this kind of a more recent phenomenon? I think we're seeing the expansion of, you know, quote unquote, activism on the bench. We're seeing more of it lately. And I don't want to call all these judges that ruled against parliament or ruled in a way I don't like. I don't want to call, call each one of them activists, but we're seeing more of those cases now. They started in the 80s. I mean, perhaps one of the, the most famous charter cases on these social or moral issues is the Morgenthaler case, which struck down Canada's abortion laws. And that's from 1988 or 89. So it was in the early days of the charters still. Uh, but if you look at those social issues, each one of them were won or lost. I think if, if I suspect your audience is primarily social conservatives, because I suspect most of them are, are, are faith, are people of faith. And so if you look at the big issues for social conservatives, almost all of them were won or lost in the courts, not in parliament. The exception to that might be the legalization of marijuana. So you have abortion, you have same-sex marriage, you have assisted suicide, prostitution. Each one of those issues were dealt with in the courts, not in the legislatures. And with the exception of abortion, each one of those were post-2000. 
So the 90s was really a time of development of charter rights. Uh, and so you see a lot of cases in the 90s where those fundamental freedoms were expanded and, and upheld. Uh, and then in 2000 and, and so on, we see more of a restricting of those rights. So arguably then, uh, when we talk about the charter, when we form our understanding about it, an important principle to bear in mind is it's a component of our constitutional framework and it's one tool, it's one element. And like any tool, it can be used well or it can be misused. And it seems now that we're kind of in this rhythm or posture of, well, particularly from the perspective of, as, as you say, from a social conservative perspective or from the perspective of Canadian citizens and residents who, who take their faith seriously and, and they see erosion of freedoms, largely through the courts, largely through the application of the charter. It seems now we're, we're, we're more in that posture of, of misuse of, of what is otherwise a good and effective tool. Do you think that's a fair statement? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an officer of the court, so I have to be careful how I speak about these things. So I don't know if misuse sure. is the right word, but certainly there is a, a wide view of people who look at the charter and charter litigation that would say that. So application, maybe misapplication is a better way of framing it. We're recording this now on the heels of two years of the COVID pandemic, a window of time where arguably there were numerous violations of Canadians' charter rights. And the debate and the dialogue that happened throughout the pandemic, uh, depending on your point of view, it didn't happen to the degree that it should have. But certainly now we're starting to, to hear and see a little bit more of the dialogue around, well, what just happened over the last two years in terms of these restrictions? And did they meet that threshold laid out in the charter where violations can take place if they constitute a, a reasonable infringement? Uh, and I'm curious to hear, are, are you involved in any in any specific cases or proceedings which are looking at this question of, of the, the reasonableness uh, or the, the reasonable infringement uh, that COVID restrictions may or may not have represented? Yeah, so I was part of two challenges, one in Ontario, one in British Columbia, on behalf of churches challenging the COVID lockdown rules. Both of those cases were abandoned because the rules kept changing and eventually the rules caught up to what we were asking for. And it's interesting that you asked the question because I had to stop what I was doing in order to come down and, and get ready for this podcast. And what I was working on today was in fact related to a similar type challenge in a different province. So some provinces were much more aggressive than others. And I can't talk specifics right now because we've not launched it, but we will be launching a challenge of a uh, provincial health order that banned all gatherings. So there are cases, and then I did a number of, uh, I represented dozens of people who were put on administrative leave without pay or fired or kicked out of university because they wouldn't provide proof of vaccination. So I did a number of those. Uh, and I know other lawyers across Canada have as well, because lots of people were losing their jobs or, or kicked out of school. We actually had some significant successes. I think we were probably one of the, uh, the law firms that had the most successes. We had about 15 or 20 people accommodated in their workplace or in their university or college. We had two people who were fired from their jobs, get their jobs back with an accommodation. Uh, but unfortunately, we had way more than that who were just let go with nothing, with no uh, restitution or, or accommodation. In your initial question, you said, 
there were arguably charter violations. I don't think it's arguable. I think it's it's obvious, patently obvious that there were charter violations, right? When the government says you can't go to church on Sunday, uh, you can't have a worship service on Sunday, well, that's a clear and direct violation of freedom of religion and a clear and direct violation of freedom of association or freedom of assembly. When the government says you can't board a plane if you don't provide proof of vaccination, well, that's a clear violation of your mobility rights in Canada, because if you live in British Columbia and have family in Newfoundland, it's not reasonable or feasible for you to drive across the country. You can only get there by flying. So that's a violation of your right to relocate in Canada. It may even be a right of your uh, right to life, liberty, a violation of your right to life, liberty and security of the person. So there were a lot of clear and obvious violations. Unfortunately, uh, the ones that were litigated were all unsuccessful. So each one of those cases, and, and in my opinion, most of those cases were prematurely litigated, which le probably led to or contributed to them being unsuccessful. You know, you have to find a judge in the middle of a pandemic when a lot of the world doesn't really know how serious COVID is or is not and how transmissible it is. You've got to find a judge with a lot of courage to go against the public narrative on that. I think cases that are being launched now will have a better chance of success because we're seeing that COVID, while highly transmissible, was not as deadly as we, as we initially anticipated. We're now seeing that some of the measures that were put into place by uh, public health officials and governments were not effective. So I think we'll have a better shot of finding judges that will conclude that those restraints on charter rights were not justified uh, in a free and democratic society, which is the legal test that the government needs to meet. On the other hand, we also run the risk of having the courts conclude that these issues are moot because the pandemic's over, quote unquote. Well, it's, it's interesting that you, you put it that way, because it almost makes it seem like this fundamental constitutional question of were these restrictions or were these violations reasonable or not? It almost seems like a large part of the answer to that is based on the, the public health landscape. It's based on something not related to the Constitution. And, and I wonder just what do we make of that? We're, we're wrestling with these complex, these critically important and crucial constitutional questions. But depending on when you filed your suit and what was going on in the public health landscape at that time, your prospects of success in getting a response to this, this key constitutional consideration may have been lesser uh, than if you had filed your suit six months, 12 months later. I mean, I mean, what do we make of that? Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, I don't want to get into a introduction to constitutional law class here, but it all has to do with the justification test. So in order for the government to justify a violation of a charter right, it has to go through a two-part test. And in reality, it's a four-part test because the second part has three elements to it. So the first part is there has to be a pressing and substantial objective. So the government always meets that first standard and no doubt it would here because there was a pandemic. Right? Whatever your thoughts are on COVID and how serious it was, there was a pandemic. So there was a pressing and substantial objective. The government clearly is easily is going to get over that. The second part of the test has three elements. It's called the proportionality test. And in that part, the government has to show, one, that the means it chose to achieve the pressing and substantial objective are rationally connected to the objective itself. So in this case, banning religious services, for example. Is that rationally connected? Well, if they can demonstrate that COVID has a higher spread in settings where there are a large number of people in closed quarters, then it's rationally connected. It makes, it makes total sense to try and limit those, those gatherings. 
Second, it has to be minimally impairing. So the government has to choose a means of achieving its objective that minimally impairs the right at issue. And again, if they have experts, virologists and epidemiologists saying, we can't have these large gatherings behind closed doors where people are singing and shaking hands and, and so on, who, what judge is going to argue with that? Not only is it rationally connected, it's now minimally impairing because they allowed, they allowed us to do virtual uh, Zoom uh, religious services. And then third, it has to be proportional. So the, the negative has to, or the positive has to outweigh the negative. Uh, and again, it, it all comes down to those experts in these cases. And that's where a lot of the criticisms of the charter and charter litigation come from, is we take the authority away from parliament and elected officials, and we delegate it to the judges. And the judges look at this and they say, well, I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't pronounce on this. So they look to the experts in the case. And so on that case I was working on today, one of my experts is going to be a theologian because we want to show that it's integral to the faith for people to gather together. Uh, one of my experts is going to be an epidemiologist to talk about the spread of COVID in church services uh, and whether or not these blanket prohibitions are reasonable from an epidemiological perspective. Uh, and so it becomes overwhelming for the judges because now they've got two virologists saying two different things. Which one are they going to believe? Well, most judges are going to err on the side of caution, right? Uh, so that's the problem we have here, is we've taken, we've taken these issues that can be quite complex away from the people we've elected to make these decisions for us, and we've given the decision and the authority to pronounce on them to unelected officials who are still, in many cases, interested in not having the unpopular view, right? Yeah, certainly when you put it like that, not just judges feeling overwhelmed, but the ordinary citizen. I mean, one, one can certainly be sympathetic to them. I'm thinking of anecdotes like the pastor in Alberta who was arrested by what seemed to be a squadron of law enforcement officers on the side of the road and in the rain and police helicopters swirling overhead for continuing to hold religious services in spite of the, the restrictions in the province. Here in Ontario is one of the provinces that early on and beyond deemed religious services to be non-essential. I'm thinking of public health authorities who in their COVID guidance and in their COVID restrictions went so far as to stipulate and dictate to houses of worship how communion yeah. should be administered to their congregation. Just this past weekend, I was uh, in the Ottawa Valley camping with my son's scout group, and we heard from the priest at the pulpit talking about how at some point during the lockdown, they conducted Eucharistic adoration. Uh, and the way they did that, they put the monstrance, the Eucharist in the window of the church, all the doors had to be locked, no one was permitted to be inside. So anyone participating in Eucharistic adoration had to do do so from the parking lot within the confines of their cars. And the church went through with that. And sure enough, you still had provincial law enforcement in the parking lot during Eucharistic adoration, just keeping an eye on people. And, and you think of all these memories, the accumulation of all these different stories and, and vignettes and, and the ordinary citizen, you can be sympathetic in terms of them feeling overwhelmed. How do we make sense of all of this, particularly when we're, we're constantly told by our leaders and officials that we've got this thing called the charter, which safeguards our fundamental freedoms, particularly freedom of religion. So in, in that type of context, do you take the view that perhaps the adjudication of these cases and, and, and what the outcome we get to, I mean, will that affect your confidence in terms of kind of the near and midterm future application of the charter? 
I'm not sure how to answer that. So I don't know that the COVID litigation is going to have a huge impact on the future development of charter litigation because it's such a unique and and finite situation. I don't. I'm not convinced that any any charter case. If somebody were to bring a charter case against the federal government on behalf of the, the federal public service who lost their jobs because they they didn't provide proof of vaccination. And let's say they didn't get vaccinated for religious reasons. And there are many people who objected to the vaccine mandates on religious grounds. All of the 15 or 20 accommodations I got were religious accommodations. I don't think the, uh, that case, win or lose, will have a significant impact on freedom of religion in Canada 50 years down the road. Because hmm. it's just so unique. Like there was a number of, there were a number of cases in the 90s on religious freedom involving blood transfusions are the refusal of blood transfusions for the children of Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, those were important cases in some ways, but they're not impacting the current real-world issues of non-Jehovah's Witnesses uh, because they're so unique and they, the, their application is so limited to that fact scenario. I think it's the same with the COVID cases. I don't think what we see right now is going to have a, a huge impact on freedom of religion case law in the future. I think the value to litigating these cases is to poke a finger in the chest of the government and say, you won't get away with this next time, right? The only reason this happened is because when COVID started, none of us knew what the heck it was. And everybody kind of went, went along to get along because it was two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, we can put up with this for two weeks. We can do Zoom worship services for two weeks. I was on the board at my church and I recommended that we go virtual the week before we were required to go virtual. But by the third week of us being virtual, when it was clear that it wasn't two weeks to flatten the curve, I was arguing that we go back into full in-person services because the issue wasn't that we, we had gone virtual at all. The issue was we delegated authority over what happens within the walls of the church to the government. And the agreement was, if we can use that word, two weeks to flatten the curve. Once it went beyond two weeks, well, that's, you know, the deal's over. So I think the reason we should be fighting these cases still, even though the restrictions are, are being lifted or are lifted for the most part, is to let the government know that, you know, in the fifth or sixth or seventh wave, if you try and lock us down again, we're not going to take it laying down. You're not going to get away with it as easily as you did the first time because we know better now. Well, certainly the COVID litigation and the restrictions remains high profile, lots of attention on it. And uh, we look forward to seeing the outcome of the cases that you're involved in uh, and some of the other ones as well. I want to quickly turn attention to what is arguably an equivalent case uh, of an equivalent profile, if not larger profile, as it relates to implications for the charter. And this is the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act from back in February, uh, when the truckers and the Freedom Convoy were in Ottawa uh, and some of the, the border crossings in, in other parts of the country. There's a, been a public inquiry headed by a justice that's looking into the lawfulness and the reasonableness of the government's use of the Emergencies Act. And certainly a key provision in the Emergencies Act is that it stipulates that any, any use of the legislation must be charter compliant. And we had our, our federal justice minister at the time the legislation was invoked, essentially asserting, yep, it's charter compliant. Uh, we've ticked that box. But naturally, there's a there's a whole commission process that is that is now being undertaken to tackle that question with much more rigor. Curious to hear your thoughts in general on what the invocation of the Emergencies Act means for the Charter and what you think the implications will be 
for the charter and its application based on the outcome of the the commission that's currently underway? Uh, yeah, so I'll try and, and break it down into a few different ways of answering that. So I, I think it was an unreasonable invocation of the Emergency uh, Measures Act. I don't think it, it was complying with the Charter. I think it violated several sections of the Charter, including freedom of assembly, freedom of association, the right to protection against unlawful search and seizure. You know, my firm has a strategic communications uh, wing and division, and we did communications for some of the truckers. And so we're involved to a certain extent with, with some of the people down on uh, Wellington Street. And we heard stories of people who had not been arrested or charged with any crime, looking at their bank accounts on their phone and realizing their bank accounts were seized. You know, that's not something you would expect to see in Canada where people who were, aren't even charged, let alone convicted with a crime, are having their bank accounts and investments seized. So I think that that's a huge charter violation. And I think it was probably the best possible commercial or advertising for cryptocurrencies that could have happened. So I don't know what the commission and inquiry is going to uncover, but I don't think it's going to look good for the Trudeau government. They were heavily criticized internationally for for having invoked it you know i think that's going to continue i think the inquiry is going to conclude i think it has to conclude that this was a knee-jerk reaction it was not proportionate to the quote-unquote risk posed by the truckers you know arguably there there was a risk posed by the blockades at the borders but that's two different two different things uh, and even that does that justify seizing people's bank accounts? So I'm always reluctant to make predictions on how things are going to play out legally, but I, I would be very disappointed if the conclusion of the inquiry was anything but critical of the way the federal government handled this. Appreciate all of those insights. It's important to emphasize spending so much time on, on the charter and, and the conversation so far. I mean, it really does serve as the primary lens through which key religious freedom and other fundamental freedom issues are are seen and practiced and, and understood in Canada. So really appreciate those insights. I want to pivot a little bit. You and your firm are on the front lines of so many of the contemporary issues uh, relating to fundamental freedoms, particularly freedom of religion and, and freedom of conscience. I'm really just curious to hear kind of what's on your desk these days in terms of high profile, big ticket issues, uh, which engage uh, these fundamental freedoms laid out in the charter. I mean, we could we could spend all day talking about Government of Canada's recent uh, legislation banning conversion therapy and, and some of the restrictions that are placed on pastors and what they can say with with members of their congregation for purposes of pastoral guidance. There's also Lots of concern around conscience restrictions that are being imposed, in particular in the medical world for doctors, nurses, and, and other medical professionals. Uh, and we're seeing different professional bodies in, in different provinces across Canada compelling their members to engage in practices like referring for abortions or for assisted suicide. I mean, elsewhere we have, again, sticking at the provincial level, lots of debates around uh, the appropriateness of curricula in schools, what's being taught in relation to sexual education and critical race theory and the like. We started to see uh, an expansion of the, the assisted suicide laws that have been put in place here in Canada. 
based uh, on what you see currently being talked about and, and playing out in the public domain or currently, you know, moving its way through the courts, what are the the issues or the pieces of legislation either existing or proposed that really have captured your attention that you and your firm are actively involved in and, and which perhaps in your estimation present or pose uh, some real risk to freedom of religion in this country? I'm just thinking of what I have on my docket right now in terms of litigation. And unfortunately, I don't, I shouldn't say unfortunately, fortunately, because it's never good for me to have to do litigation on these issues. Um, but uh, right now, the only case I have that's ongoing that I can talk about that would fit this kind of uh, these parameters is a human rights complaint here in Ontario. So I represent a Christian videographer who said no to videotaping or vid providing videography services to a same-sex wedding. And so she's now facing a human rights complaint. And, you know, that's an interesting case. And I think it's a good case that we can win because the issues at play here are not only freedom of religion, but also freedom of conscience and freedom of expression. She's being asked to provide artistic services for something that she doesn't want to do. If I was a photographer, could I be compelled to take nude pictures, right? Or the ex one example we give is if I was a freelance, a Muslim freelance writer, could I be compelled to provide freelance writing services for a Christian? Probably. Could I be compelled to provide freelance writing services where I uh, write up a defense or an apology of the divinity of Christ? No, probably not, because that would violate my freedom of religion uh, and my artistic integrity. So that's what we have on the go right now that I can talk about. We have other irons in the fire that I can't talk about yet. For example, the one related to COVID that I mentioned earlier. I can tell you that from my perspective, the biggest threat we're seeing now to religious freedom is Bill C-4, which is the ban on conversion therapy. And the reason for that is the way they define conversion therapy. So conversion therapy is a real thing, and it's essentially been known to be a mix of electroshock therapy. They Let's say you're a man who's attracted to other men, they would strap you up with all these uh, electro things and show you homoerotic pictures and then zap you so that your body or your mind associate those homoerotic pictures with feelings of pain. You know, most people, including Christians, I think would say, well, that's not okay. Even if you even if you are an adult who consents to it, we, we think that's barbaric and we, we don't agree with that. The problem is the way the legislation was framed is it includes... Uh, it defines conversion therapy to include any service or treatment that seeks to limit sexual activity and it's one-way sexual activity, ba basically limits homosexual activity. So the reason that becomes a problem from a religious freedom perspective is if you're a priest or a pastor, it's probably not uncommon for you to have a young man come see you and say, you know, pastor, I'm struggling with pornography. And I know it's wrong and I want to stop, but I can't stop. And then at that point, the priest or the pastor or the church elder or, or whoever, or the, or the Christian counselor would provide pastoral counseling and perhaps accountability. Now, if you're a priest or a pastor and you have a young man come see you and say, you know, uh, Father, I'm struggling with pornography. Before you can do anything, you have to say, well, let me ask you, what type of pornography is it? Because if it's heterosexual pornography, I can help. If it's homosexual pornography, I can't. And so that puts a muzzle on the clergy and it really limits our ability to share the gospel because the gospel, if anything else, 
uh, if nothing else, is the freedom uh, from sin and the bondage, our bondage to sin. So it puts a real muzzle on on people to be able to share the gospel. So I, I've used this example several times. I have a friend who is uh, is engaged to be married to a woman, but struggles with what he calls same-sex attraction. Uh, and he's in counseling, he's in therapy, he's in recovery, but a few weeks ago had a relapse. And so his fiance told my wife, my wife told me, and I sent him a text and I said, look, I heard, I'm here for you, I'm happy to talk, I'm happy to listen, I'm happy to pray, whatever you need. So we ended up on the phone and he told me what happened and we talked about it. And at the end of the call, he asked if I'd pray for him. And so I did. And in my prayer, I asked that he would be relieved and delivered from these urges and temptations that he didn't want. That now can land me in jail for up to five years. I don't think anybody who who opposes conversion therapy, as I described earlier, would oppose that, right? I have a friend who tells a story about uh, lobbying on the predecessor to Bill C4 in the last parliament and was meeting with a member of parliament from the NDP party. And he was there with a colleague and the member of parliament was in favor of the ban on conversion therapy. And so the colleague said, and I'm not going to disclose who the member of parliament is, but the colleague said, well, I have a, a nine-year-old son. If my nine-year-old son came home from school and said, dad, I think I'm actually a girl and I don't know what to do with that. And the colleague says, and I, and what if I told my son, well, let me, let me tell you, son, I want you to know mom and dad love you so much and God loves you so much. And I know it was probably very scary for you to come and tell me this. And I'm proud of you for having the courage to do so. But son, I want you to know that when God created you, he created you as a boy and he did that deliberately. And I know that this is unpleasant and I know that it's a struggle. And I think if you turn to God, he'll get you through this. Uh, but know that no matter what you decide, and no matter where you land on this, mom and dad and God will love you no matter what. And so the colleague says to the member of parliament, should I be imprisoned for saying that to my son? And the member of parliament said, well, I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if you should go to jail, but I, I got to tell you that what you just described to me sounds like abuse. So that's the world we're living in. Yeah, that's the world we're living in. So my prayer that my friend asked me to pray for him could land me in jail for up to five years. This example that my friend gave, where he, all he does is affirms his love for his son, is considered abuse by parliamentarians. So that's why C4, I think, is such a threat to freedom of religion. I, I was going to ask the question, I mean, just based on what you described as the description of conversion therapy in the law and just how broad and expansive it is. Immediately, the question that comes to mind is, well, how did we get there? How did the legislators on Parliament Hill even allow for this and even cast so wide a net? But I think that story kind of sums it up and demonstrates how we got to that place. I think your example gives the, the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it all the same. I'm going to infer that part of the reason you consider C4 and the ban on conversion therapy to be such a threat. I mean, it seems like, it, among other things, it, it would potentially have the effect of criminalizing the recitation or the, the sharing of passages from scripture? Is, is that a fair assessment? We don't know because it hasn't been applied yet. We don't really know whether my prayer for my friend would land me in, could land me in jail for five years. This law has not been applied in the courts. It has not been prosecuted. Frankly, I don't think the first case they're going to pick is going to be a case like the one I described. You know, they're going to pick a pastor or a priest that performs an exorcism on a nine-year-old boy against the, the nine-year-old boy's will. So they're going to pick something more egregious, I think. I don't think it's far-fetched to believe or, or fear the possibility 
of clergy being prosecuted for preaching a sermon or reading certain texts from the pulpit. I would welcome that case. I think that's a winnable case, but I don't think it's far-fetched to see that kind of application of this law in the future. Frankly, what I see happening in, in the world of religious freedom right now is not so much a limit on religious freedom per se, but rather a privatization of it. So we're really mm. seeing a limit on religious expression. So we saw that with the Canada Summer Jobs controversy. We're seeing that with the recommendations to the uh, armed forces with respect to military chaplain, where the, the recommendation was that chaplains from faiths who don't ordain women should not be hired as, as chaplains. So that would exclude all Abrahamic faiths. So what we're seeing is you can be pro-life and apply for a federal grant. You just can't talk about being pro-life. You can be um, Catholic and apply for a position as a chaplain in the military. You just can't talk about the ordination of, of women or men versus women. So what we're seeing with this current government, in my view, is a push to privatize the practice of, of faith, the, the religious expression of individuals. You can, be, you can be Christian, you can be Muslim, you can be an Orthodox Jew, just not in the public square. Wow. There's one final current events issue, uh, which I really love to get your thoughts on, and that's the issue of abortion. I mean, we're recording this approximately one week after the major ruling from the United States Supreme Court in Dobbs versus Jackson, which reversed Roe versus Wade and the successor judgment of, of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Here in Canada, on opposite sides of the political spectrum, we've heard similar thoughts and themes as it relates to what this might mean in Canada for Canadians. We've heard folks on the political right say, well, this might give some momentum, this gives hope, this shows what is within the, the realm of the possible, and we should keep fighting the good fight. And similarly, uh, with folks on the, the left side of the spectrum, we've heard, oh my goodness, this might give this might inject new life and momentum into efforts to reform or overturn abortion laws here in Canada. Uh, amidst this, uh, this dialogue and this debate, and admittedly, it's still fresh, it's just a week old. What does it all mean in your view? Sure. Well, let me say three things. And before I get into those three things, I want to preface it with the fact that I have not read the decision. It came out about a week ago. I, I've had a busy week. I have not had time to read it. But let me say, first, it's going to have zero impact on Canadian law. Absolutely zero impact on Canadian law. There's various reasons for that. One is the Dobbs decision doesn't criminalize or ban abortion in the United States. It simply overturns Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade didn't say, well, what Roe v. Wade said was no state can pass laws limiting abortion. And so this decision says now the states can do what they want. So some states like California and New York, it'll be status quo. Nothing will change. Other states mm. like Alabama and perhaps Texas and some of the more small C conservative states are going to put in restrictions on abortion. And it may be gestational limits. It may be limits re related to the abortion provider having hospital privileges nearby. These are the kinds of laws we've seen passed in certain U.S. states in the lead up to this decision. So the, the Dobbs decision does not outlaw abortion in the United States. And even if it did, it has zero impact on Canadian law. Our legal status with respect to abortion is that there is no law in Canada. There's no law at all. There's no law limiting it. There's no law banning it. 
There's no law that says provinces can't do something. It is purely criminal, which means it's federal. And the fe no federal government since uh, the government of Brian Mulroney has ever, has even attempted to introduce legislation regulating abortion. So the Mulroney government did. It died in the Senate by one vote, and no government since has had the guts to try it again, uh, which is odd because the majority of Canadians would like to see some restrictions, not a complete ban, but some restrictions like gestational limits at the very least. Uh, so legally, it'll have zero impact on Canadian law. That's number one. Number two, I think it's a good thing because as pro-lifers, we're pro-life because we recognize the humanity of the unborn or preborn child. And so there's a million abortions a year in the U.S., or there were a million abortions a year in the U.S. This inevitably will reduce that number because some of those more small C conservative states like those I mentioned are going to pass certain limits, which means there's going to be less late-term abortions or abortions going to become more expensive and less available, which means the number is going to go down. Uh, and so as pro-lifers, that means we're, we're going to see lives saved. So that's a great thing, whether it's happening in the U.S., in Canada, in Brazil, in uh, Portugal, we're just happy to see less babies being killed. Third and finally, I think the impact it might have in Canada is cultural. So if we see a expansion of pro-life laws in the United States, it might embolden Canadian parliamentarians to entertain such laws. We haven't had a government willing to do so, as I said, since Brian Mulroney, and he did it once and that was it. So if we see those laws pass in the United States, you know, you often hear that politics is downwind of culture. I think on these social issues, it's the, the opposite, right? And and the, the social issues in Canada I talked about that were decided by the Supreme Court have proven that to be true. Most Canadians were against same-sex marriage until the Supreme Court pronounced on same-sex marriage. The following year, most Canadians were in favor of it. The same was true for assisted suicide, I believe. And so if we see a shift in popular opinion in the United States on the issue of abortion, that will inevitably bleed over to Canada. And then if we have the public opinion to support it, we may have parliamentarians that are more courageous to go through it. We already have the public opinion to put in some restrictions. I think it's something like two-thirds of Canadians would like to see some law in place because the only country apart from Canada, the only other country that has zero law on abortion is North Korea. It used to include China, but China mm -hmm. now has a ban on sex-selective abortions. So our our only the only other country in our sandbox is North Korea. Is that really the country we want to be paired with on such a, an important issue? Whether you're pro-life or you're pro-choice, this is a very important issue. It's important for different reasons, but it's important nonetheless. So I think this Dobbs decision might mobilize the pro-life uh, movement in the United States, which may broaden its membership, and that hopefully will bleed over to Canada and then change the uh, politics of abortion in Canada as well. But legally, it'll have zero, zero impact on Canadian law. God willing, if the day does come when we start to get uh, members of parliament who are more courageous to tackle this issue and put in place some kind of law or restrictions, in your view and based on your understanding of case law in Canada, those restrictions, or depending on their, their nature and scope, those would be compliant with our, our friend, the Charter, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. So the Morgenthaler decision, which is the decision from 1988 that struck the prohibition on abortion, invited Parliament to legislate abortion. The Supreme Court recognized that Parliament has a role in protecting the fetus. That's the words the uh, Supreme Court uses. The reason it hasn't happened is because 
poor parliamentarians. They're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, right? And if you have these pro-life parliamentarians introduce a piece of legislation that would put certain limits, they're attacked by the pro-choicers and they're attacked by a lot of the pro-lifers. So there's no political mm. incentive for them to do it. That's why we don't have a law in Canada. It's not because it would violate the charter. In fact, to the contrary, the Supreme Court invited Parliament to legislate abortion and recognize Parliament's role in doing so. So yeah, it, depending on what kind of restrictions they put in place, they certainly could pass constitutional scrutiny. We pray for some kind of momentum, some kind of new life and renewal in the hearts and uh, in the actions of Canadians and our legislators in the wake of the Dobbs decision. I just want to round out our conversation here, circling back to one of the themes you touched on uh, a few minutes ago, this push towards the privatization of faith or the, the public expression of, of an individual's faith here in Canada. And I want to chat a little bit about how you may have felt that or you may be feeling that within your profession. We've seen a lot in disciplines and fields like the medical world and conscience restrictions uh, for doctors and nurses. But if you could speak a little bit to just what it's like to be a practicing Christian in the legal world these days, and perhaps some of the challenges that, that come your way, including in this form of taking your faith and kind of being expected to tuck it in your own corner. Yeah, well, I have the benefit of having my own law firm, which is an openly Christian law firm. So I'm not like other Christian lawyers where I may be cornered by, by senior partners because I took on a controversial case. My entire firm exists because I take on controversial cases. Uh, so we're an openly Christian law firm that is devoted to serving the broader church. So our, our clients are churches, faith-based charities, dioceses, Christian schools and universities and hospitals and so on. So that's number one. I have the professional freedom from a, a business perspective to do what I do. But from a professional regulatory perspective, we have seen some potential risks. So a number of years ago, the Law Society of Ontario introduced a requirement. So every March, all lawyers in Ontario have to submit an annual report. And it includes things with respect to our trust accounts. It asks about the number of pro bono hours we've done that year, things like that. And a number of years ago, the Law Society introduced a new requirement in the, or a new question in the annual report, which was confirmation that you had a personal statement of values, I think is how they called it. And the statement of values had to, or statement of principles, not values, pardon me. The statement of principles had to affirm the acknowledgement that we must uphold human rights. And the problem with this was the Law Society of Ontario, a few years earlier, or not a few years, it was, this was on the tail of the Trinity Western Law School litigation. So the Law Society of Ontario had just rejected an application from Trinity Western University for accreditation of its law schools or of its law program. Uh, and the reason the Law Society of Ontario rejected Trinity Western's application for accreditation of its law uh, students the graduates of its law program was because Trinity Western University upholds a biblical view of marriage and sexual morality as being between one man and one woman. And any sexual activity outside of the confines of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman is outside of God's design for sexual uh, behavior. And so the law society concluded that that was homophobic and discriminatory towards gays and said, you, your graduates can't apply to practice law in Ontario. And so that put lawyers like me in a real bind because I have no problem upholding human rights. In fact, I'm a human rights lawyer. But 
I, I was involved in the Trinity Western litigation. I acted for universities and schools that had similar codes of conduct, and I acted for, for churches that had similar codes of conduct. I sat as an elder in a church that had a similar view of sexual uh, morality and, and marriage. It, was I therefore disqualified having taken on the cases I took on and having the beliefs I, I take on? Am I now unable to, to have that statement of principles? So thankfully that was quashed politically, not through the courts, but that was kind of a, a red flag to lawyers that, you know, you're next. The doctors we already got, lawyers were coming after you next. So there was a real pushback, but the real, the real tragedy of that is 97% of lawyers check the box saying they had a statement of principles. Uh, and I think 85% of lawyers were against the imposition of a statement of principles requirement. So you had a number of lawyers that just were not willing to go out on a limb. So it's again, that privatization. So 85% of lawyers were against it, but 97% of lawyers checked the box. You know, I call it the new blasphemy laws and the blasphemy laws we're now seeing are, I am a Christian, I am pro-life, I am pro-biblical marriage and sexual morality. I uphold these Christian values. That's now blasphemy. And in the Christian tradition, we have uh, all of these great examples of uh, advocates and barristers over the years. I mean, St. Thomas More, of course, seeing a major example. When, when you look forward into the future, do you anticipate more barriers to you fulfilling your vocation as a lawyer? And how, what would you say to people who are discerning their vocation at this time who take their faith seriously? Yeah, I think I'm probably safe because I'm already in, I'm already a lawyer. And if they try and take my license away, I'm not going to let them take it away easily. So I think the current, the current lawyers are fine, but I don't think it's unreasonable for people in undergraduate studies right now to be worried about potentially not getting into law school and getting through law school because of their faith, if they're people of faith. So we may see that. And we're seeing that now with, with medicine. So you know, anecdotally, I'm hearing stories of medical school interviews asking prospective students whether they would perform abortions, participate in assisted suicide and things like that. Now, just because they ask the question doesn't mean the answer to that question is weighed in a decision on whether or not to admit the student. But why ask the question if it's not going to play any role, right? So we may end up seeing that in the law school forum. Now, I don't know if they're doing law school interviews of prospective law students. They certainly weren't when I was in law school or when I got into law school. But we may see that in the very near future. And we are already seeing it with respect to certain jobs. So years ago, there was a, a movement of big companies in Canada. So all the major banks, all the major newspapers, a lot of the big hockey teams, big tech corporations, their in-house counsel formed a, a coalition called Legal Leaders in Diversity. And they went out to all the big law firms in Canada and said, unless you answer this questionnaire that shows your employees reflect the diversity of can the Canadian population, we're not going to give you our business. And for some of these big law firms, if they lose one or two banks, they lose you know a quarter of their business. So it's a lot of pressure. As far as I know, there's only one law firm whose uh, chairman was a committed practicing Catholic who said, we're not going to fill this out. We're not going to answer your survey. And then you hear the anecdotes about, well, I have 200 partners and 180 of them are Jewish. Which 170 should I fire? Right? Or we have an office in Whitehorse and there's three lawyers there and they're all white guys. What am I supposed to do with that? So we're already seeing law firms move towards hiring a more diverse, quote unquote, diverse group of lawyers. 
And right now that might be from an ethnic perspective, but it won't be long until you see that from a religious or even a moral perspective. So these legal leaders for diversity were openly against Trinity Western's proposed law school for the same reasons law society were. My law firm now has women and men. It has brown people and white people. Um, it has Greeks and, and, and Dutch, but we're all Christians. So are we not diverse now? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, what you said about that case of different corporations going out and saying to the legal community, here's our expectations, does kind of conjure up. This isn't just challenges to you folks in the profession and the challenges to you and your vocation. This has potential challenges, not, not just for practitioners of law, but for those who benefit from the protections of the law. And one wonders if uh, if all this skepticism and aspersion is being cast on those who practice law and who potentially believe certain things according to their conscience and the like, well, what does that mean for for the accused, for those who are put on trial? So, I mean, suppose they hold these beliefs. Are we going to get to a point where aspersion is cast on them or there's some kind of skepticism put on the ordinary citizen or individual who perhaps gets lesser protection under the law uh, because they they hold beliefs that are that are deemed to be out of sorts with the principles of the legal profession. It, it seems like a, a serious challenge that, that may be heading our way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, but that could be, especially with jury trials. If it becomes so unpopular in Canada to be a Christian and somebody gets accused of any crime and the prosecution paints them as an open Christian, if the consensus in Canada or in Canadian culture is that all Christians are monsters, well, you know, that's not going to look good on this accused person in their trial, regardless of the criminal charge. But, uh, you know, that's that, I think that's a separate issue. But yeah, that's more of a cultural issue than a legal issue, I think. I think judges are still able to put that kind of bias aside in their judgment of criminal cases. I think it becomes more difficult for them to do on the social issues. But I think from a criminal law perspective, it's easier for a judge to dislike an accused and find them not guilty if the evidence supports that conclusion, then it would be for them to go against something they disagree with in their, at the core of their being. It's certainly a disheartening thought, but something that gives me confidence and rays of hope uh, is knowing that folks like you are in the profession and you're continuing to fight the good fight and having some great success along the way. Albertos, we've reached the end of our time with you. Thank you so much for joining Crown and Crozier today. God bless you and continuing in all the advocacy that you're doing on behalf of fundamental freedoms, particularly freedom of religion uh, and helping to keep this land a country that's glorious and free. So thanks very much for your time today. It's been a real treat. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.